hello and welcome to the lives and styles of old Hollywood. Today I want to talk to you about Eleanor Klin, the inventor of the It Girl and of Hollywood glamour. And I must say I'm really excited about this episode. I have read the biography on Eleanor Klin by Hilary A. Hallett and it is just divine. So this episode might be a little bit longer, but believe me, I did not include like most of it. If you're really interested in old Hollywood and in how it ties back to the old world, how it ties back to England, how it ties back to all the happenings in Europe, like the war and the Edwardian English society about the Belle Epoque. I would really recommend this biography, Inventing the It Girl by Hilary L. Hallett, to everyone who's interested in Hollywood. It is just marvelous. And today I will give you a little tour of Eleanor Klin's life and be very excited about it because she was one heck of a woman. So, Eleanor Glynn played an important part in creating the allure of old Hollywood. She brought glamour and sex appeal to the screens and she invented the It Girl, the concept that dominates our fashion and gossip magazines until today and which Clara Bow became famous for. Her sister Lucy, who is better known as Lucy Lady Duff Gordon, became another household name for the Hollywood star system. But I will do a deep dive on Lucy's life in the next episode. Today, I will focus on Eleanor Glynn. And believe me, that is enough to cover. So some things will overlap in this episode and the next. So today you might hear me talk about Lucy in this episode as well. But rest assured, I will cover her in more detail next week. So let's start with how the girls, Lucy and Eleanor, grew up. Their parents were Douglas Sutherland, a civil engineer, and Eleanor Saunders, who was of Anglo-French-Canadian descent. Both kids were born in London, England, but eventually raised in their grandmother's home in Ontario when their father died from typhoid fever when working on a tunnel construction in Turin, Italy. The grandmother had been born and grown up in Europe, mainly in the capitals Dublin and Paris, and she had learned how to move in high society. It was also in Paris that she got to know her husband, who had a French mother who had barely survived the French Revolution. They both emigrated to Canada and built a ranch while they had eight children. Despite having like a very nice life there, the grandmother always longed to go back to the elegance and the entertainment of Paris. But to keep their Parisian spirits all up, they dressed up in their finest clothing each night for dinner. And those dresses and clothes of utmost elegance were usually sent to them from their wealthy relatives in France. So this is the setting to which Eleanor Saunders returned to with her two girls, Lucy and Eleanor, when being widowed at age 23. And the grandmother intended to raise the two girls for appearing in high society and taught them all the finer things that were important back then. For example, that a lady of high society never shows emotions, that she will be cheery and witty no matter the circumstances. And the older sister, Lucy, actually detested the strict rules and she ran around with the boys. She was the wild one. Eleanor, on the other hand, was quiet and imaginative always sitting in the corner dreaming up stories. But like all this changed when their mother married for a second time 
and she got married to a Scotsman by the name of David Kennedy, who was about 40 years her major. And they all moved back to Scotland. There in Scotland, David Kennedy had a very imperial home. It was hugely decorated, impeccable, and there were lavishly dressed women who were invited to dinner. And both girls were really impressed by all the glamour and like all the old world richness and luxury and style they saw. It impressed them so much so that they both would set their ambitions to become rich and fashionable ladies of the world. Soon, though, they would leave Scotland. They would relocate to the Isle of Jersey because of Mr. Kennedy's health problems. And here, another crucial element for the lives of the two sisters got very evident. It was their absolute detest of the Victorian ideal of wifely duty. They saw their mother tend to their stepfather, who was gravely ill, like an obedient slave with no emotional love exchanged, while he was like getting more cruel and miserable by the day. And this very obviously unfulfilled and miserable life was the one thing neither Eleanor nor Lucy wanted to have for their own lives. The two sisters were reported to be very bright and clever and always be the best dressed because Lucy, at a very young age, already had great dressmaker skills. And when she did not run around with the boys, she made beautiful dresses and gowns for herself and Eleanor. So they were like always like very impeccable, very fashionable and like very pretty. While Lucy left Jersey early on to stay with relatives in London, Eleanor was left alone on the Isle of Jersey. And since her stepfather didn't want to pay a tutor for just one girl because, you know, education for women was not deemed very important back then. So Eleanor was there with no education, just with a big library. So Eleanor was limited to this library to get inspiration and knowledge of the world. And she would be ashamed for the rest of her life of her lack of formal schooling because she didn't get one. In the books, she learned about the world. She learned about glamour. It was Scottish writer Sir Walter Scott who first coined the expression and he explained it as a powerful dark magic that distorts reality. It sounds very different from the definition you would find for glamour today, but it is very interesting to see where it's coming from. Another very important writer to Eleanor was Philip Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield, who wrote letters to his son on the art of becoming a man of the world and a gentleman. And Eleanor actually had this book with her until the end of her life and always placed it next to her bed because so great was its influence on her. And basically what this particular book taught her was that you could say whatever you want, even the most disrespected things in the whole of society, if only you did it in style. And this is another one of the gold nuggets that would carry Eleanor's life to where it would go, to know this concept. Another important influence in Eleanor's life was the double standard of Victorian nobility and moral. She knew Lily Langtree, which was also known as Jersey Lily because she came from the Isle of Jersey. Lily Langtree was the mistress of King Edward. And Eleanor also read about the Stuart monarch Charles II and his mistress Nell Quinn. As Charles was very loose morally and Lily Langtree as a mistress to a married man, Eleanor's openness to what sex was and who would do it was very different 
from what Victorian morals would deem womanly, because her world was largely made up from the books she read. And finally, the one book that really sharpened her desire to make something out of her life was Vanity Fair, the book by Thackeray, with the heroine Becky Sharp, who's coming from humble beginnings and would make up her own persona and identity and would make it right up to court. And just like Becky, Eleanor was very vain. This actually was her biggest vice. She always made sure that she looked good and also later in life spent more than was available to make everything on her and around her look and feel beautiful and very, very good. So just like Becky, Eleanor Glynn did not want to be trapped in a situation that felt unbearable and unfilling. So this is like the starting point of everything that will follow. So what did Eleanor learn? She wanted to become part of Britain's upper society. She wanted to have means to lead a life that she had first caught a glimpse of at the castle of her stepfather in Scotland. And she wanted deep, fulfilling romance and passion. But how would she get that? Well, in that time and age, it was by marrying rich. Her sister Lucy actually did that first. She married wine merchant James Wallace. And she was incredibly unhappy about that. They had a baby within a year, but James was mostly absent and drunk. But Eleanor stayed with them, and that gave her the long-awaited entry into London society. Eleanor had become a very beautiful woman. She had red hair, like really flaming red hair, cat green eyes, milky skin, and a tiny waist. And she actually received two marriage proposals during her time in London, but rejected both of them on the grounds of personal preference. Then her brother-in-law banned her from his house because of her rejections, and so Eleanor went to their relatives in Paris, France. Eleanor had been there before, during the beginning of the Belle Epoque, when she was around 16 years old. There had been amusement, arts, the newly erected Eiffel Tower and the theatre, which was completely different than English theatres, because the French did allow for elegant sexuality and women would use distinctly feminine glamour to smooth acceptances of sexual transgressions. And it was also in Paris that Eleanor witnessed Sarah Bernhardt, the famous actress of that time in the play Theodora, where Bernhardt was basically having sex on the stage. This particular play was Eleanor's sexual awakening. This was what she wanted. She wanted to be such a powerful woman. She wanted to have passion. This was her dream. So she came back to the city that she loved and adored when her brother-in-law kicked her out of the house. And there and then she would enter high society with her rich cousins who were part of the upper circles. And Eleanor enchanted the crowds with her wit and her beauty. But she learned that the Frenchmen did not want to marry her because of her lower society background and that they only wanted to have her as a mistress. So Eleanor went back to England to hunt for a suitable husband because she was already past 25 and thus past the marrying age. And the fear to be left a spinster was definitely on her mind. She used her newfound French glamour to become a party sensation in England and after a while, she captured the interest of Clayton Glynn, a blue-eyed, broad-shouldered nobleman. As he was just as smitten with her beauty as she was with his, they married a mere four months after meeting. But what Eleanor was hoping for in her wedding night and on her honeymoon 
did not come true. Because she wanted ecstatic sexual pleasure, as she had read about and seen on stage in France. Instead, it must have been very disappointing, as some of her heroines in later novels would moan about the honeymoons and how bad they were. But don't get too sad, this is just the beginning of Eleanor's story. Now, Eleanor, who had moved in upper society both in France and in London, was now very well educated and worst in like being with a high society. But her husband's home was not in London. It was in the Essex countryside, where completely different things were deemed important. So glamorous clothes, beauty, wits and love for books and poets did not count. But good news, Eleanor befriended her new neighbor, Lady Daisy Creville, the Countess of Warwick, who was way more like Eleanor loved it. She was clamorous, she was decadent, she threw weekend-long parties, and she was the most famous one of the Marlborough House set. The name of which comes from the home of Prince Edward, Marlborough House, and the set of people that he used to socialize with there. What Eleanor learned here more than ever was the double standard of the British upper class. Adultery was common, especially the Marlborough house set was known to exchange husband and wives. It was quite common to move from lover to lover, even with the spouse's knowledge. But as always, when a husband's infidelity became public, nothing but ridicule happened, so his livelihood was not at stake. But when a wife's infidelity became public, it almost always led to the insane asylum, divorce or social death. Eleanor later wrote about this, The cloak of clamor that surrounded the whole matter perhaps rendered temptation all the more irresistible. Because the Marlborough house set made everything look so glamorous, rich, marvelous and beautiful that the deeds which were done in private seemed more admirable. That is one of the key elements again that Eleanor Glynn got from moving in Britain's upper class. She was quite aghast actually when she discovered that her husband was not against sharing her with other noblemen who approached her. So that was really the double standard that she moaned about for a quite long time in her books and in her diaries. During her marriage, Eleanor bore two girls. And of course, back in the day, everybody was unhappy about it because only sons were wanted to carry the line. When she was recovering from her second childbirth, she actually developed rheumatic fever and arthritis and was confined to bed for extended periods of time. So she reverted back to reading. It had been her favorite pastime since childhood. And she did so by reading her old diaries, which were testaments of a, of a former, more carefree version of herself. And she found her writing utterly delighting and funny. Eleanor actually wrote a diary almost her entire life. And she did other writings as well. She was a skilled writer. When she met the editor of the provincial society magazine Scottish Life, he offered her to write a fashion column. Being a lady and the sister of legendary dressmaker Lucy, she would write these letters anonymous as letters from Susan to Griselda. And she did so up until the birth of her second daughter. But then, bedridden, sick and entertained by her old writing, Eleanor decided to write another installment of letters, calling it The Visits of Elizabeth. And in those, debutante Elizabeth chronicles her season in London in letters to her mother. But basically, it was a tour of the upper class's lives and affairs. She basically exposed the philandering ways of the upper class, but in such a classy way that unassuming readers would not get it. 
On August 9, 1899, the first letter of the installment was published in The World, a journal for men and women. And it caused a sensation. I like to liken it to Lady Whistledown from Bridgerton, telling all the secret affairs to the white public. And as in Bridgerton, Eleanor's letters were a sensation and a scandal at the same time. Readers are fascinated and try to figure out which parts were true and which ones were imagined. And Eleanor had finally carved a new identity. She was society's premier authoress because she had ducked Victorian conventions of women writers taking male pen names because women were perceived as not being smart enough to write books back then. But her glamorous and extroverted neighbor Daisy, the Duchess of Warwick, had pushed her to do so, as her identity as writer behind the works was already known in their circles and would come out sooner or later anyways. When being approached by a publisher to have all her letters published as a book, Eleanor jumped on the occasion. As I said before, Eleanor was very vain and wanted to be in the spotlight. She wanted to be seen and adored. And publication of her writing on both sides of the ocean surely would make that possible. And it was. The Visits of Elizabeth were one of the first novels that were marketed as bestsellers, which was quite a new term in both England and the US back then. By now, Eleanor had marriage and childbearing behind her, as well as her own money in the bank. And just like Becky Sharp, she wanted to go places and she traveled to Cairo in Egypt. And that is where Eleanor had her first vision, which she would call it. It was during nighttime at the Sphinx, the big cat-like creature next to the pyramids. And in this vision, the Sphinx talks to her. And I quote again from the great Hilary A. Hallett biography, There's no beyond. Live and enjoy the things of the present. Eat, drink and be merry. For tomorrow you die. And I who sit here and know, tell you there's no beyond. The things you can touch and hold to your bodies are the only ones worth grasping. This is the wisdom sitting here, for an eternity has taught me. In almost all her writing, Eleanor usually plundered her own experiences with some imaginations. So all her novels trace back to something she had experienced herself or witnessed herself. So if you look at the biographical timeline and the events happening to her as well as in her books, you can form assumptions of what had been real and what she had imagined. When her travels brought her to Greece, into Hera's temple, she experienced a second vision of dancers filling the temple in a strange, sensual dance. And this second vision ignited her passion and yearning for sex for a man that would enthrall her completely. And these two visions probably have led Eleanor into embracing her womanhood and sexuality. But it would take some time until she would meet the right man to do so. And it was actually in Cairo that she met Boris Vladimirovich. He was cousin to Russia's last emperor and he was extremely good looking. And he danced with her and he even kissed her on the neck. And she longed for more. Thus, he made it possible for her to get an invitation to the Russian court as his mother was the court's most prominent hostess. She wrote Reflections of Ambrosine right after this experience, a novel about an unhappily married heroine that was disappointed with the moral codes of the society that she still abided by. It sounded okay, but was not a great success. And the people wanted smart, witty, single women like Elizabeth to read about. A turning point for Eleanor was a trip to the Swiss Alps with her husband. 
The surroundings made her crave passion and sensuality so much so that she tried another attempt to ignite a passionate sexual relationship with her husband, but he actually just laughed at her. And things then got even worse when he refused to buy her a tiger skin that she pointed out that she wanted. So she went and bought it herself with the money she had earned and the tiger skin would become one of the most important parts of her future. The books that followed were The Vicissitudes of Evangeline, or Red Hair, as it was called in the US, and Beyond Rocks, A Love Story in 1906, in which she worked through her attraction to Alistair Innes Kerr, which apparently never culminated in an affair. And although both books were not received well critically, they were commercial successes. These two were more erotic than her earlier novels and indicated that readers, mostly women, wanted to read more liberated books. And so Eleanor wrote exactly that. Her book, Three Weeks, turned the world upside down. She wrote it when her husband sent her flirt in his cur on his way and at the same time the news of the death of Serbian King Alexander I and his wife Traga broke. So Three Weeks is about an older Slavic queen who seduces a younger man. This book insists that sexual compatibility is an integral part of a successful relationship. Most of the book is their foreplay of words, the sex scenes and their traveling. The Slavic queen is often referred to as the tiger queen, as in one scene she lies on a tiger skin in front of an open fire with hardly anything on her body, masturbating. And this bestseller basically marked the start of the romance novel genre. Compared to today's standard, the book has very little actual sex in it. But at that puritanical time, it was quite fiery in Britain. It was not the overtly sexual scenes, but the long stretches of education from the queen to the young man, the caresses, the kisses, the roleplay, the tension and the traveling that made it so utterly erotic and clamorous. It was about the building of desire and tension. What this book did was to show women's sexual desires and their quite different characteristics compared to men's. This book was a smashing success. Eleanor Klim became a celebrity author that everybody knew. And she finally knew exactly for herself what she was looking for in bad and in a man. Her sex fantasies were fueled by utter sexual frustration, her upbringing by her grandmother to never show emotion, the double standards of Britain's morals and the Victorian ideal of the dutiful wife. These all had led to her frustration and repressed sexuality. And it was so that morally ambiguous Britain shunned Eleanor. So she went to the US instead, trying to make three weeks a success over there and turning it into a play. But the critics in the US were even more cruel than their English counterparts. But Eleanor stood her ground and her clamorous appearance allowed her to say things that usually would have been forbidden. Once back in London, she tried to get three weeks on the stage and start in it herself. But it was disappointing to the audience, as it was not as racy as the novel would make one assume, but too daring for British morals. So it was forbidden to have further theatrical runnings with this play. But what happened? Lord Church Curson, Marquess of Kettleston, was in the audience. He sent Eleanor the hide of a tiger that he had shot in India an invitation to tea. Eleanor fell in love deeply and they conducted a, a and they conducted an affair in private, and husband Clayton acknowledged it. By then, 
the Clint fortune had mostly dried up, as Clayton, the husband of Eleanor, was gambling a lot and taxes soared. So Eleanor became the main breadwinner of the family and published novels more quickly. The most successful one was His Hour, that drew on her experiences in Cairo and her dalliance with the Russian prince. She actually wrote it in St. Petersburg at the Romanov court, being a guest of the Grand Duchess Marie Pavlova the Elder, charming the Russian nobility by night, writing her novel by day. But then World War I erupted and changed the world. Eleanor had first seen Paris when the Belle Epoque began, and now she would see Paris that she had loved so much go down. Eleanor even served as a waitress to pass meals to soldiers passing through Victoria Station. During that time, she started her book, The Career of Catherine Bush, which was her first heroine of lower middle class origins, which just suited the times. Followed by a book with multiple essays called Three Things, which in essence says, the three essentials to strive after in life are truth, common sense and happiness. And it was William Randolph Hearst who published the book, one of Eleanor's most important connections in the US. But then her husband Clayton died. So this chapter of her life as a married woman, mother, was just as over as the old ways of Europe soon would be. She threw herself in the war coverage that she had been invited to do on the Western Front for the American press. And she was shocked by the horrors she saw and leveraged her connection to Hearst to raise funds for French refugees. She also engaged her sister Lucy to raise funds with a theater production. She started writing again when she was invited to the Spanish court by Princess Victoria and released Letters from Spain for Cosmopolitan, in which she described all the traditions and the life in Spain. And something else happened there. Jessie Lusky, vice president of production at Famous Players Lusky, invited her to Hollywood. So, Eleanor traveled to the US by ship and was greeted by Lasky in New York, where she was whisked away to a press conference as well as a photo shoot. Her immaculate and eccentric clothing, her red hair, the leopard skin she brought with her, she was gold for all things publicity and Lasky knew it. And Eleanor was very quick to create a new identity. From now on, she would be Madame Glynn. And that would suit her better because she was already in her mid-fifties. During the press conference, Eleanor told the press why she was in America. And it was because she wanted to write a screenplay about romance in post-war conditions. And the central part of it was a new kind of hero, a man that possessed it. It was defined by Eleanor Clinton as something in you which gives the impression that you are not at all cold, but could be awfully loving if you wanted to, and would really enjoy dozens of kisses from the right person. That makes it. And it was a great concept for sex, because Hollywood had a huge problem with sex at that time. Why does society blame the pictures in a morally deprived movies for the descent of morals in the young? So Madame Klin was thought to be the one who might be able to smooth over the erotics with a proven track record of glamour that showed enough, but not too much. What Eleanor actually found out later, nobody actually wanted her there. It had, it had been a publicity stunt, a staged competition between Samuel Goldwyn and Lasky, who were brothers-in-law, to snag the best writers. 
All they wanted were the prestigious names to make the movies easier to go by the critics. When Eleanor arrived in Los Angeles, she must have been blown away. She had left the world of social class, nobility, king and queens, war, destruction and the end of the old world. But now she had arrived in a sunny, busy metropolis that was full of hope and lots of money. At that time, Eleanor Klein was already 56 years old, remarkably older than most of the people she worked with in Hollywood, where everybody, even back then, was young and beautiful. Here in Hollywood, nothing that had helped Eleanor in the past, her beauty, her youth, her status and her reputation as a celebrity author, would help her here. She would have to prove that she could translate all of that into the new medium of movies. So she got busy building her Hollywood identity, Madame Klin, the one who knows how to do glamour. She redecorated a hotel suite to make it seem more exotic and eccentric with an Arabian flair, tiger skins on the floor, Buddha stages, tarot cards and rocks. Her first screenplay would be featuring Gloria Swanson, who was barely 21 years old then. Swanson had been in Hollywood for a while. It actually was the most favorable environment for women to achieve wealth and opportunities. Although the business was very much controlled by men, women were almost their equals. And Swanson knew that she needed influential people to like her, to push her to stardom. And after meeting Madame Klin, Swanson was convinced that Klin would be able to help her. So, Eleanor Klin set out to change Gloria's way of dancing, moving and speaking. She completely remodeled her tresses to a more slinky elegance and tamed her unruly hair to a shiny bob that accentuated her great features. Gloria Swanson would become the first clamor queen of Hollywood and later married into nobility which is definitely a touch of Klin. What Klin set out to do was to bring clamor to the whole colony of Hollywood and not just to the movies. For example, she set up a tea time literary salon at which only tea was served and not alcohol, as others would assume. One of the visitors would be Charlie Chaplin, and those two would be very fond of each other and became close friends. What came next for Eleanor Klin was the search for the perfect hero for the movie The Great Moment, an actor that had it but she could not find it. And in the end, it was Milton Sills, who definitely did not possess an ounce of it, who starred opposite Gloria Swanson. And this actually proved that Eleanor did not have any influence on anything on the set. It was just only great publicity. Nevertheless, the great moment was marketed as an Eleanor Klin movie, and it was a raving success with the masses. Eleanor, with her white skin, green eyes and mundane ways of dressing, her British accents, her associations with European nobility and now her film success gave her such gravity and grandeur that she could get away with a bit more than other authors when it came to censorship. And as she had always known, with a bit of glamour, sins could be cloaked quite nicely. She actually also had a string of young men following her, dancing with her, and probably she also conducted affairs with them. But nothing on this matter was ever reported and nothing was found in her diaries about these young, beautiful men. But another man who captivated Eleanor Klin's interest was Rudolf Valentino, a well-born Italian tango dancer. And he had it. Although Eleanor wanted him to star in The Great Moment, opposite Swanson, Lusky cast him for The Shake. But Eleanor finally got what she wanted when Valentino and Swanson were paired for Beyond the Rocks. 
What Eleanor understood early on was that Hollywood did not need less sex, but a more glamorous way to tell the story to get away with it. And the Roscoe Fetty Arbuckle sex scandal was the test for Clint's influence. She was asked by Hearst to do a series of articles on what might have caused this tragic event in the grander scheme of things. And these articles were a colossal success. They were pointing out that the hypocrisy of the Victorian age caused this great rebellion to live free and love free. She also pointed out that looking for money and not thinking about being glamorous and classy and not thinking strategically anymore, as well as drinking too much, was culprit in this tragic case. Nevertheless, the case and trial threatened Hollywood and the movie industry. Different censorship bills were put into action in various states and the move to even more censoring was near. That's when the movie industry became proactive. The leading producers of Hollywood asked William Hayes to head the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association, which later was shortened to Hayes Office. And what came out of it was the Hayes Code, the code of self-regulation rather than censorship by the states. But in effect, it was censorship within Hollywood. But until he was serving in office, Eleanor Glynn would be the one tasked to make the Hollywood scene, as well as the movies, more glamorous and more acceptable to the wider public. So it became clear that Eleanor Glynn's presence in the media, her European noblesse, her sobriety, and her preaching to the Hollywood people did have a calming effect on the outside world. She made Hollywood and the people working there look less like sex-hungry, money-mad and drunk artists, but more like artistic, self-confident young bohemians. And that would be demanded if she wanted to get away with even more explicit romance movies without getting the censors all riled up. Her next movie was Beyond the Rocks, which was starring Gloria Swanson and Rudolf Valentino. Clint really focused on the love scenes and made them more European, slower, more yearning. It was kissing of fingers and palms, smoldering looks, beautiful people, wonderful robes, and it worked like a charm. Valentino was the man with it, the combination of feminine and masculine. Beyond the Rocks was an immense success, and its stars, Valentino and Swanson, became clamorous poster children of what Eleanor Clint could do. Her next publications were Letters to Axe in Hearst's newspapers. In them, Eleanor muses about life and love, recounts her travels and teaches her learnings to the younger people. The columns led actually to one of her most successful books, which was called The Philosophy of Love and was published in 1923. And then it was time to make a movie out of her most famous book, Three Weeks. The actors did not meet her expectations at all. But Cedric Gibbons, the art director in the movie, surely did. He was the one closest to her aesthetic preferences. During the filming of three weeks, six days opened in the theatres, and it was a huge success, as well as her book The Philosophy of Love. One reviewer said about it, Clint had become the authority on what makes the world go round. And three weeks became a smashing hit just as much when it opened in the U.S., and then Irving Tolberg, producer at Goldwyn, offered her the deal of a lifetime, a 50-50 partnership making movies together. Tolberg was not only the husband of Norma Shearer, but also the golden boy of Hollywood. He was a savvy businessman, bringing new structures to the studio and to the movie scene, and he was making the studio bigger and better than ever. So he hired the best writers of Hollywood and the best stars, and he wanted Eleanor Klin, the one for the best and most glamorous love scenes. So Eleanor signed a contract and officially started Eleanor Clint Productions based on this offer. Her daughters and their respective husbands, though, who had no knowledge of Hollywood at all, 
thought her crazy for giving away 50% of her work. And they basically forced her to cancel the contract and convinced her to form the Eleanor Clint Productions Company in England instead so they could help her. And it actually marked the demise of Eleanor Clint in Hollywood. Crossing Talberg, one of the most influential men in Hollywood, in this way had been a really bad move. Her son-in-law in particular, a very arrogant upper-class Englishman, thought he knew better than everybody else and tried to negotiate for Eleanor. But that failed dramatically and made dealing with Madame Clin a horrible experience for the studios. The news about this exploded in Hollywood in the US and Eleanor rightly believed that everything she had worked for for so long would go to the gutter. Finally, she worked out another agreement with producer Schenk for a 50-50 agreement and basically forced her family out of the negotiations and out of her company. When production His Hour started, Eleanor Klin was very happy with the casting of Gilbert Rowland as the heartthrob. He had just as much it as Valentino had brought to the table. The filming of the movie was going great and Eleanor even directed some of the major scenes when director King Vidor fell ill. The movie was an even bigger success and showed the world and Hollywood producers that she was of real value. I have already recorded an episode on it girl Clara Bow, and that is the genius of Eleanor Glynn at work. In the beginning, I gave you a glimpse of what Eleanor Glynn believed it to be, but until now, she only ever used it for men. It actually was the idea of producer Bud Schulberg. He made proposal to Clint that if she could write a screenplay for rising star Clara Bow that would illustrate the concept of it for her persona, she would receive an advance of $50,000 and additionally 25% of the film's income. And of course, always eager for money and opportunities, Eleanor Clint took the deal. Clara Bow was in Hollywood the odd one out. She was a very rough Brooklynite who drank too much and loved the boys. She apparently was the only one without a morality clause in her contract, which had been introduced after the Arbuckle scandal. Bow was mesmerizing for Eleanor Klim. She had shining red hair, no hat, but a scarf tied around the hair, big eyes and a small body primming with a desire to live life. But most of all, she was absolutely genuine. She knew where she was coming from and did not try to hide it at all. She was perfectly comfortable with who she was, and that made her so magnetic. It would become the most successful movie Eleanor Klin ever worked on. She made a fortune out of it. And Clara Bow became a megastar who defined an era. Her sexual escapades smoothed by the clamorous touch of Eleanor Klin. And... When she was at the height of her fame, Eleanor left Hollywood for Britain at the age of 64. They revived Eleanor Klin Productions over there in Britain and tried to fire up the British movie scene. But the two movies that she wrote and produced were box office failures and almost took all her fortune. So after that experience, Eleanor Klin lived quite comfortably on the trust fund her daughter had opened and managed for her for all these years. And Eleanor wrote articles until three years before her death. She died during World War II on September 23, 1943, peacefully after short illness. To be quite honest... <laughs> I am absolutely fascinated by this woman. And I read the great biography by Hilary A. Hallett, which I will link in the show notes, in about three days. Eleanor Clint preached the old world of Victorian England with the new jazz of old Hollywood. 
These two seem so far apart, but they were connected and overlapped. And Eleanor Glynn played an integral part of forming the new identity of a new woman, one that is independent, who is sexually freed and who is self-confident. And I will forever be grateful to her for all the glamorous love scenes, the glamorous set designs, the glamorous dresses and the glamorous screenplays that evolved from her writing. Because I'm in love with old Hollywood and she was the one inventing the basis for it. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Eleanor Klin. Next week, you will hear a bit more about her sister, Lucy Lady Duff Gordon, and what happened in her life. I can't wait to talk to you then, and I hope you are having a wonderful week. Bye. <music>